From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, we speak with Nick Little from the Center of Inquiry to discuss the organization's mission to foster secular society based on reason, science, freedom of inquiry, and humanist values. And after that, economist Dean Baker from the Center for Economic Policy and Research joins us to discuss our present economic state. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. America often touts itself as a Judeo-Christian nation. What one believes will often determine what they hear when that statement is made. Suppose one is a non-believer. How do they hear it? Moreover, is there space in this Judeo-Christian classification for them? Assuming there is no space, how does that square with our collective constitutional inheritance. The Center for Inquiry is committed to challenging the present Judeo-Christian ethos, which they find harmful to our democratic values. Joining me to discuss the Center for Inquiry's mission is Nick Little. Little serves as the organization's legal director. Nick Little, welcome to the Public Morality. Hi, Byron. Uh-huh. You know, uh, the Center for Inquiry, their mission statement reads that the Center for Inquiry strives uh, to foster a secular society based on reason, science, freedom of inquiry, and humanist values. What does that mean? Well, as an organization, um, we also, beyond that mission statement, uh, we've defined our vision, and I think our vision on that will help clarify that. Sure. The, 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 The vision of the organization is a world where people value evidence and critical thinking, where superstition and prejudice subside, and where science and compassion guide public policy. So what does this mean uh, when we look at it? What that means to me is it's more of a methodology rather than a society based on predetermined answers. Uh, So if we look, for example, at the situation... Let's look back at the situation with Hurricane Katrina and the response to that. The response we would look for from a secular society that we would hope for in that instance is how can we help people? How can we house people? How can we get food to people who need it? How can we use scientific advances to try and ensure that hurricanes in the future are less damaging? as opposed to, on the other hand, looking at it and asking the question of why is God angry with us such that he punishes us with a hurricane? Was it because we had a, 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 gay, a gay pride parade in New Orleans, as, as certain um, ministers were saying at the time was the cause of it? So I think it, it's important to look at this, that it's, it's not 
a society based on predetermined answers. There is no book that you can look in that tells you what is going to happen and what is good. It's about using a particular methodology. So if there's a problem that we need to solve, what we believe in is that we should look at what is the evidence on it? Uh, who has expertise here? Who should we listen to? How can we make society better? And we should rely on experience, on expertise, and on our own intelligence, rather than simply looking for solutions in a, in a book written thousands of years ago. So what that means, our mission statement means, is it's a way of looking at problems and how we solve problems. So it's a society based on uh, these things, on reason, on science, on freedom of inquiry, humanist values, uh, rather than a, a predetermined idea that there is someone outside of the system, call them God, whatever, who is controlling everything and who we can look to to solve our problems. No, uh, so one of the things I hear you saying, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like you start by, in, in this case, using the, the Hurricane Katrina example, you start by asking the compassionate question. So the compassionate question in this case is how do we help people that need to be helped? And then you use the aforementioned values that you articulated to get at that compassionate question. Would that be an accurate way of looking at it? I think that's a very accurate way of putting it, yes. And so uh, uh, the other thing, the other thing in your language, I just want you to tease these out for me, if you would. How are you defining mythological narratives of the past along with dogmas of the present? Well, that's, um, <coughs> excuse me. What we look at is basically a recognition that we have, we have developed as humanity. We've gone from a... You know, as we've evolved, as society has evolved, we've moved from living in caves and, and hunting woolly mammoths to the society that we see today. And with that progress, as science has developed, our views have developed and changed too. If you go back to um, the Dark Ages, the explanation for everything that we didn't understand was it must be God. If a, if a volcano erupts, it mm -hmm. must be God, because we had no idea of what a volcano was, for example. So what we've seen is the concept that's used quite broadly, the idea of the God of the gaps, that as science explains more, the what we look for to outside to some divine influence is reduced on that. And so many of these mythological narratives of, of the past are no longer necessary because we understand mental health issues far better than we used to. So when somebody has fits, when somebody falls down frothing at the mouth, we no longer look and say they're possessed by a demon. Instead, we say there is a chemical imbalance in their brain that results in this occurring. How can we treat that? Now, unfortunately, these mythological narratives, while some of them have gone, that many of the effects of them we still see. So, for example, the concept of original sin, for example, has stayed with us for, for centuries. 
that has been used very much to point at women in society and to look at women as the cause of original sin and to justify discrimination against women. In the same way we've seen with, with climate change issues, um, and, and this, we hear politicians today saying this, that their view is climate change can't be an issue because God will protect the earth from any possible danger. Um, that after the, the myth of the flood, that God promised never to destroy the earth by flood again. And so if we believe in that God, then there's no need to deal with rising seawater, for example, because God won't allow Florida to be put underwater. So these, these dangerous mythological narratives have current day effects. We, we look at America at the moment, and 38% of Americans still believe in creationism. Well, uh, evolution not. being one of the most fundamental principles of science, and yet 38% of the country does not believe in it. And these, these religious dogmas still going through, if we look through U.S. history, how they've been used to justify oppressive policies and discrimination. Uh, slavery was justified on religious grounds. Segregation was justified on religious grounds. Discrimination against women was justified in the same way. And now what we're seeing is that those same religious dogmas are being used to justify discriminatory treatment against LGBTQ people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could, that list you just gave, you could, you could go on, um, you could have uh, cited the Holocaust, you could have cited apartheid. So it is, Absolutely. So it's very pervasive. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. It's very important as well, Baron, uh, for me to say that religion was also used to oppose those things. Right. That's a, yes. Yes. Yes, that's true. That's true. And, um, I, I, religion can be used uh, for good and it can be used for bad. Just like, again, you can use science for good purposes and for bad purposes. There's been horrific incidents of, of the perversion of science into, into evil um, through eugenics for example. Uh, and so these, these are methodologies, methodologies. They don't guarantee you a good answer. Um, it's how you look at things, and then we still have to do the right thing with them. You know, it brings me to a question I was going to ask you earlier, but you sort of touched on it now, so I'm going to jump right to it. So what I hear you saying, you're not seeing, um, for lack of a better word, you're not seeing religion as a one-size-fits-all, but you do see a, a dominant thread of religion that you see is, is, is harmful to the culture and society. I think the answer, yes, I think religion can be harmful in that way and is harmful in that way when it tells us someone else is going to take care of things. Uh, what we view as, as humanists and what's central to us is that we only have one life. We only have one world, so... Let's, let's try our hardest not to mess it up. Um, we don't believe as humanists that after we die, we're going to be whisked away to live in some paradise. Instead, we, we need to try and make Earth as close to that paradise as possible. No, we can't make it perfect. There will always be hardship. There will always be tragic events. But how we respond to them, we need to try and make Earth as much of a paradise as possible. And 
if you have a mindset that this is only temporary, that if I follow the rules of some ancient book, after I die, everything's going to be wonderful, I think that that moves away from the incentive to do things on this earth here and now. And um, it allows you, it can then, this idea of reward after your death, can be used to incentivize people to do the most horrific acts, um, such as flying a jumbo jet into a skyscraper in New York uh, because you believe that you'll receive virgins in heaven afterwards. It was certainly one of the uh, tools used to um, uh, incentivize slaves. That this is, You do this work at, at no wage, and then you'll be rewarded later. Absolutely. Absolutely, and you can see a very different thing, um, as, you, as you can tell, I'm of British descent. If you look at the, the Industrial Revolution and low-level low workers were always told that, you know, it doesn't matter how bad your life is now because as long as you obey your masters, yes, you'll receive heaven afterwards. And the justification of the exploitation through the promise of later reward is, is a very negative effect that religion has had. Well, you know, that also sort of uh, sort of gets at what you just said, in my view, gets at um, the Marx critique when Marx was talking about the opiate of the masses and what he saw, uh, the role of state religion and its harm and its harm on low on low income individuals in that, in that society. Absolutely. Yes. Um, what what Marx was talking about was the way in which people could be. Uh, distracted from the oppression that they were suffering in day-to-day -day life by these promises of the future. And um, you can see that throughout history. Basically, any society you look for, you can see that use of religion. And again, on the other hand, you can also see the use of religion to oppose that oppression, uh, liberation theology, for example. Right, right. Who, who by the way, liberation uh, theologians... Uh adopt a Marxist critique uh, uh, of the matters they're addressing. So it's funny how those two sort of work in tandem. Absolutely. Um, for those who um, are not familiar uh, with the Center for Inquiry, um, spend a moment, if you would, talking about some of the issues um, that the organization is concerned with. You, you mentioned climate change, but I'm sure there are others. Absolutely. And, and there's so much out there. Um, we essentially, we have two separate focuses, but the, these focuses interact with each other. On the one hand, we have the secular humanist uh, side where we would be supporting the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause, uh, the separation of church and state. And on the other hand, we have our pro-science work. So these two things interact with each other very much. Um, and to give you an idea of some of the things that we, we work on very much on the we work on the representation of non-believers in society and the privilege given to religion in society. So, for example, dealing with uh, prayers in public schools, for example, or the display of Ten Commandments monuments on, on, on public property. Um, we look at uh, the Establishment Clause, protecting, and the First Amendment, the true definition of religious freedom, um, rather than the perversion of religious freedom that we're seeing that you know, my religion gives me a right to discriminate against LGBT people and to refuse to bake wedding cakes. 
we look at the trying to minimize the damaging effects both of religion and of pseudoscience. So I mentioned before creationism. We work to ensure that evolution is taught to our children in our schools. Um, when it comes to healthcare, we, we do a lot of work on, on trying to ensure that children get the vaccinations that they need, that parents can't deny a child medical treatment and replace it with faith healing. Um, we work on the, the pseudoscience that is um, homeopathy, for example. And as we've talked would you, about... Would you def uh, define that, please, if you would? Well, homeopathy is an old 17th century German concept that is based on, on two principles, neither of which has any basis in science whatsoever. The first principle is that, the, that you cure something by treating it with what caused the problem. So it's this idea that like treats like. And so if something causes a symptom, you give somebody more of that, and it stops the symptom. And on the other hand, they believe in, in the idea that things get stronger the more diluted they are. And, and these homeopathic remedies, and I, I hesitate to even call them remedies, homeopathic products, such as there is a flu remedy out there that uh, the allegedly active ingredient is the liver of a Muscovy duck. And it's diluted down to such a level that there is less of the active ingredient than if it was one atom of that in the entire oceans of the earth. And so essentially people are being sold placebos, sugar pills, and they're being charged money for it, and they see it on the shelves of, of drug stores along with science-based medicine, and there is no, there's no protection for people from this. So we're working to try and ensure that the government adequately labels these products and that stores have to inform people when they sell them these products that these are not science-based medicines. So... We also do an awful lot of work um, in, in the area of women's rights, on reproductive health care, on uh, contraception and abortion rights. Um, we work on LGBTQ rights. On an international level, we work for those who are harmed by blasphemy, blasphemy laws across the world. We have a program that we're very proud of called Secular Rescue that works with um, free-thinking, secular, atheistic bloggers in countries around the world where they are in danger, of, literally, of death. We have had um, bloggers who we worked with in Bangladesh hacked to death by Islamist mobs carrying machetes, and the government won't protect them. So instead, we have stepped in, we have relocated some of these people, we have provided them with support as, as they're trying to build their lives up again. So we work against the oppression of atheists, non-believers, also of religious minority groups in many countries around the world where these countries have theocratic governments um, such as Iran, such as, to in recent times, Pakistan has been moving that way. We've seen Turkey move away from the concept of a secular society and towards a more Islamist one. So on the international level, that's where we work. Um, I apologize, that was a lot of things in a, in a short period of time, but it, 
I hope that gives you an idea of the breadth of things we work on. No need to apologize. We're just two old friends having a conversation. I'm just curious, <laughs> I'm just curious about what you do. No, no need to apologize, sir. Um, Great. You know, one of the things you mentioned, you, you, I'm, I'm going to talk about it specifically, but you mentioned um, the Establishment Clause in the First Amendment. It would, mm-hmm. it would seem to me and um, that while there's an emphasis, on obvious, for obvious reasons, in protecting non-believers, uh, it would seem to me that that work would get people under the larger rubric of believers who would also be supportive of your work. Is that the case, or am I, am I missing that? Um, yes. It, we view the Establishment Clause just as, as such a fundamental principle of American government and, and as something that that made America different and made America safe as a nation. And it, it has become seen in recent years by certain groups as kind of the, the orphaned stepchild of the First Amendment, that all the emphasis has been placed on freedom of religion. And we, we absolutely support and defend freedom of religion for everybody. But it's also important that the Establishment Clause, which is listed first in the First Amendment, is there to turn around and to to basically give us a society where neither neither does the government control religion, but nor does religion control the government. Now, recently, uh, Supreme Court... um uh, uh, in a seven to two vote in Trinity versus uh, Trinity Lutheran versus Comer, the, uh, the governments can't discriminate against churches that would otherwise qualify for funding just because they're religious institutions. Now, I would right. I would imagine the Center for Inquiry would find this decision problematic. So, if, if so, <laughs> could, could you explain the ramifications of the ruling and, 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 and your actual position? Absolutely, and um, I, I think saying we find it problematic could be the understatement of the century. <laughs> um, it was a wild we, guess on my part, Nick. It was a wild guess. <laughs> we, we submitted a brief in this case. Uh, we signed on to the ACLU's brief in this, um, because this is a major step by the Supreme Court. This is, this is not a minor case. For the first time ever, the Supreme Court has said not only can the government give money to churches, which we would argue is a violation of the Establishment Clause, but that they have to give money to churches. And, and before, much as everybody has tried to say, and if you look at Justice Breyer's concurrence, that this is just a playground, this isn't just about a playground. The church made it very clear that this wasn't just a playground, that they viewed their preschool and their childcare as part of their religious mission. In this, they, they use this playground for prayers. They use the school to seek to convert people, to, to spread their religion. And that's their absolute right to do. They have an absolute right to pray there, to, and we, we will defend their rights. What they don't have a right to is have people who aren't members of the Lutheran Church pay for them to do that. They don't have a right to the money that atheists are paying in, that that Roman Catholics are paying, that Jewish people, the Muslims are paying. Those tax monies should not be used to support a particular sectarian organization. 
And what we're worried about in particular is nobody knows how far this is going to go. Nobody knows because the Supreme Court wasn't clear. It does open, I described this at the time, as blowing a breach in the wall of separation between church and state. Um, Sonia Sotomayor's dissent, I think, has one critical thing that, that sums up our view on this, that this decision leads us instead to a place where separation of church and state is a constitutional slogan, not a constitutional commitment. We are worried, Brian, we, we are worried that if separation of church and state does not mean that they, there can be no taxpayer money given to a religious organization to use for religious purposes. If it doesn't mean that, what does it mean anymore? And that's terrifying to us. Uh, stay, staying on that thread, another um, problematic, I'm using problematic in quotations, Nick, another problem. Mm-hmm. Another problem. Uh, the president, President Donald Trump, um, signed an executive order earlier this year, and there's also an accompanying bill in Congress at the same time called the First Amendment Defense Act, um, which, and this, these are my words, not yours, puts the First Amendment in tension with the 14th Amendment uh, 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 in terms of uh, equal protection clause so that um, re- under the guise of being a religious organization, not even a church, a li- religious business, uh, that's what you claim, that you can discriminate, you talked about the pizza or the bakery earlier, that you can do that under this legislation. And, and so I'm going to say I know you have problems with that. Oh, uh, completely. <laughs> and, yes, uh, in one way you're absolutely correct. This puts the First Amendment into tension with the 14th Amendment, the protection of, of equal rights to everybody. If, however, a true understanding of the First Amendment... There is no conflict there, because we have always accepted that the protection given to you in the First Amendment, the protection of freedom of speech, the protection of freedom of religion, is not considered an opt-out clause from any law that you, that you feel like. You still have to obey the same laws that other people in society obey on this. And... It's now, we're seeing this in, in the, the cases of to do with same-sex marriage in particular. And recently there was an interview with this Colorado baker who turned around and, and his point was that he did not believe Jesus would, would make a cake for this couple. Now, many religious people I know, many dear friends of mine, then turned around and said, that's the most ridiculous thing ever. Of course Jesus would have made a cake for, for this soon-to-be-married couple. And, and we get into this big debate over whether a carpenter from Nazareth would have baked a cake for two men getting married. And I think what's, what's critical here is it doesn't matter whether Jesus would have baked a cake or wouldn't have baked a cake for this couple. We need to, what a secular society means is that our laws are justified without reference to religion. And if we have a law that says, if you own a business, you have to serve everyone at that business, regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of their gender, regardless of their race, regardless of their religion. If we have a law that says that, you then don't get to turn around and say, 
Well, no, you know, because my religious beliefs don't allow that. Well, because this is what they, this is what people have tried time to. If you look back to the Civil Rights Act, there were, in particular, um, certain extremist Protestant groups were arguing that they had a religious right not to feed African Americans at their restaurant, and the courts turned around and said, "No, I'm sorry, you do. We won't make you." serve African-Americans. If you don't want to serve African-Americans, you don't have to, but you can't open a restaurant. You can't open a business and not serve African-Americans. And it's to this, uh, this day, the argument is about uh, LGBT people. If people's religion is allowed, they're, under their religion, they're allowed to discriminate against LGBT people, why, again, can we not have somebody claiming his religion doesn't allow him to have African-Americans in his restaurant? Why can we not have, for example, a, an Islamic business that's turning around and saying they will not serve women who drive to the store on their own or women who don't wear a veil? Um, if somebody decides that disabled people are disabled because it's a punishment from God, should they be allowed to refuse service? to disabled people in their store. It, if you allow people this opt-out, it is impossible to limit it to just LGBT people. Not that it should be accepted just because it's LGBT people, but yet the First Amendment Defense Act is a corruption of what the protections of the First Amendment are meant to, are meant to be, and we will, we will fight against it, and we will take part in the court fights, and we're going to win on this one. Uh, well you mentioned the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Is, is what's missing here that uh, at some point, I don't know when that point is given the configuration of the, of the current Congress, but what I hear you saying is that we need to be, do, do we need to be explicit about civil rights as they obtain gay and lesbians? I mean, should, should, I mean, does the 64 Act do enough or should we be more explicit in further legislation in your view? I, yeah, if I'm playing Fantasy Congress... You're king. Um, no, you're king for the day. Go ahead, Nick. <laughs> if I'm king for the day, I would include protections for LGBT people. I would include LGBT individuals as a protected class under civil rights legislation. I think it is incredibly sad that we need to do that, that who somebody decides to marry, who somebody falls in love with, who somebody you know, has sex with, that anybody cares about that enough to refuse those people basic human rights, that saddens me. But we are in a society where, where that happens. Well, we um, have... And so, yes, I, I would add uh, sexual orientation as a category, as a protected class under civil rights legislation. We still have 29 states where if you're gay and I'm your boss, I can fire you and you have no recourse. Yeah. And... It, 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 it saddens me and amazes me that that's the case. Why, why any employer would care about, uh, you know, who you love, just, uh, just it, it's shocking. Um, but you're right. Over half the states, people can be, if they display a picture of their, their spouse on their desk, they can be fired for that. Um, and, and that's just wrong. Um, Finally, uh, in 1963, Attorney General Robert Kennedy um, uh, stated that within 40 years he could see 
in America where a black man can become president. And, and so he was off about seven years. I think it took 47 years for that to happen. Uh, but it, the only diversity we've had in, in the 44 individuals, there's only been 44, uh, 44 individuals who've been president. The only diversity we've had is one was Catholic and one was black. And I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, if you, as you look out, um, can um, we have a non-believers president someday? Is that how far off are we are in your view? Oh, well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is we probably already had a non-believers president, or at least certainly non-Christian presidents. Well, but well yeah, we definitely def- had non-Christian, but openly non-believer. Like- right, and that's, that's the key word, is openly on that. And, and we're not there yet. Unfortunately, you know, polls show people would rather vote for a bank robber than an atheist for, for president. Um, slight exaggeration, but not by much. Society is changing. Um, society is changing so rapidly, uh, and the, the polls show this. The, the Pew Trust does a, its religious landscape survey. And we're seeing that, in particular, in the, in the young age group, 35% of Americans call themselves this group um, known as the nuns, and that's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Um, that they have no specific religious affiliation. Now, a lot of those people will then say that they believe in some kind of God, but they don't identify as Christian. They don't identify as Jewish or Muslim or or, or Baha'i. So that number is rising all the time. Um, I don't know how long it's going to take, and honestly, President's kind of a, a big ask on that. Maybe we should be focusing on getting a few representatives and senators in on this, but it, it's going to happen. Um, maybe maybe 20 years, maybe a little more than that, but I think the change is going to be very similar to the change in, in the view towards uh, lesbian and gay individuals. People didn't suddenly wake up and think, oh, it's, you know, Gays are fine. Lesbians are fine. That's that's not what happened. People realized that their next-door neighbor was gay. They realized that their daughter is a lesbian on this. And they, they looked at those people and realized, wow, that that's no different than they were before. I just know their sexual orientation now. So we're going to see a similar thing. As, as secular humanists, as atheists, as the non-religious become more seen in public, and people realize that, hey, they're a good person, even though they don't believe in the same God as me, and even though they don't believe in any God. When the more people realize that you can be good without God, and they see people in the public eye being good without God, that's when we're going to see the change at the ballot box. In your last comment, I was thinking it was 1978, uh, shortly before he was assassinated, when... um, San Francisco supervisor Harvey Milk said that the only way, the the path toward gays and lesbians being equal is they first have to come out to friends and family, and yes. and we saw we've seen over time that Milk was absolutely right in that critique, and um, I think your sentiments about non-believers is, is exactly the same. Uh, Nick Little, Center for uh, Inquiry, thank you so much, sir, for joining us on the Public Rally Day. We've very much enjoyed it. Thank you very much, sir. Have a great day. You same to you. That was Nick Little. Stay tuned as I talk about the state of our economy with Dean Baker from the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C.
Welcome back. Each month, the federal government issues economic reports ranging from jobs to consumer confidence as a way to assess the state of our economy. Do such reports offer a precise picture of America's true economic status? To grapple with that question and others, I'm honored to once again welcome to the public rally one of the most respected economic voices in the country, Dean Baker. Baker is co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. Dean Baker, welcome back to the public morality. Thanks a lot for having me on. Good. Uh, as you assess um, the first half of uh, 2017, what grade would you give the current economy? I'd give it a B minus. I mean, it's what I'd say is we're moving in the right direction. We still have a good rate of job creation. The unemployment rate is pretty low in the scheme of things. We're at well four four now. It's up slightly, but in any case, that, that's lowest than it's been uh, in you know pretty much uh, the last forty five years, with the exception of the, the late nineties. Um, wage growth is moderate um, and also hitting at the middle and bottom. Uh, so that's good. I mean, it's not great. And I mean, the reason why I'm saying B minus rather than A is because we could and should be doing a lot better. We should be seeing wage growth of one, one and a half percent a year. Um, we should be seeing ideally more at the bottom. Um, again, I said we're doing better than norm, better than we have for much of the last uh, four decades, but that's still not great. But on the whole, um, things are moving in the right direction. We still have relatively low mortgage rates, so in principle people can buy homes. I know there's lots of reasons why more moderate-income people are having trouble, but it's not interest rates. So, you know, on the whole, it's okay. It's not great. I wouldn't try and tell anyone it's a great economy, but it, it, it's doing okay. You, you mentioned... Um, um jobs and where jobs currently stand. I was wondering, uh, do you feel the current matter, and this is not just this present administration, but previous administrations as far as back as you would like to go, are we assessing the jobs numbers in a way that really tells the story? Is there a more judicious way we should be looking at those job numbers? Well, you know, we look at the, we get the jobs numbers every month, and they're kind of headline numbers that do tell us a lot. So we get the unemployment rate, and again, it's 4.4 now. That's pretty good. You know, we haven't been under 4%, well, briefly in 2000, but you'd have to go back to the early 70s to when we were down under 4% for any sustained period of time. So that's almost 50 years ago now. So that means something. Um, we look at uh, the number of jobs being created, roughly 180,000 a month so far the first six months of this year. That's a pretty good pace. Um, but, you know, obviously people care not just having a job, but, you know, what's the quality, what's the pay, do they have benefits, are they secure in it? And that's where it doesn't look great. So, as I said, we're seeing some modest wage growth. That's good, but that's after a long period of having uh, no wage growth or in some, some years, you know, during the early part of the recovery where wages were actually falling adjusted for inflation. Um, we also know that oh, fewer people have health care insurance through their employer. That's okay if they're getting it through another source. This is obviously a big issue for the debate with the Affordable Care Act, but people do need secure health care insurance. And, you know, certainly the Affordable Care Act is a step in that direction, but it certainly didn't guarantee everyone's secure insurance. And if that's repealed, then we don't know where we are. So I think when people look at those numbers, they're right to look at them. They're very important, but they're certainly not the whole story. Would we would um, would you like to see an addendum, something like a, uh, for lack of a better word, a quality jobs index? So the number of jobs that are created, how many pay a livable wage, how many pay benefits? I mean, someone, how you want to list those out? Would that be a better barometer, or is that just too unrealistic? 
Well, I'll tell you what, we actually did that. We, meaning the Center for Economic and Policy Research, one of my colleagues, John Schmidt, did that. And we, we did that for a number of years, and it just didn't catch on. And I think part of the problem is we could all sort of say, well, we're interested in more. There are other things we care about than just, you know, the number of jobs. We want to know if they're good jobs. But the problem is as soon as you move beyond wages, then it's not as though we could all agree on what that should be. In principle, if we could all say, okay, you know, here's the criteria. It has to pay at least, you know, 17 an hour. It should provide some sort of pension for when people retire. It should provide health care. I mean, we could think of what those things might be, and if we could all agree on them, then in principle it would be possible to do it. But it seems, you know, from our experience, you could, you don't get everyone to agree. Yeah, well, if you have a high-wage city like, say, San Francisco, and then you have a city like Little Rock, I mean, uh, what's a livable wage is two different conversations. That's right. So that's, you know, and that's a point people have made to us and, you know, their complications. So how do you adjust for that? And so, uh, you know, my view is let's get the numbers we could agree on. We know what the the number of jobs is. We know what the average hourly wage is. Again, that doesn't, average doesn't tell us everything because, you know, if Bill Gates is doing real well and everyone else is doing horrible, well, the average could still be good. Um, <laughs> So, you know, these are some basic things we could agree on, but then beyond that, you know, I think we have to rely on, okay, here's a study, here's how many people have secure health care, here's how many people have a pension and employment, here's how many people are earning above X level. And, you know, you mentioned differences in, in living costs in different cities. There have been efforts to adjust for that, which you could do. Um, problem is none of those are perfect, but that, you know, so as you try to get more detail, there's more room for argument and I'm not saying we shouldn't argue. I mean, we want the best measure we can, but the problem is we can't all agree on what that is. Now, the last time we had you on, I, I remember asking you about the relationship between the Dow and the overall economy. And as I recall, um, you said very little. You gave this great example, uh, but you said very very little. And I says, but, but my question to you this time, sir, is uh, what about perceived turmoil in Washington? Does that have any impact on the economy? You know, I think it has a little bit, but I think it's hugely overplayed. I was talking to another reporter on this a couple of weeks ago because clearly there's an awful lot of uncertainty. Um, I, I, if you envision sort of two extreme scenarios, and let's say this is one extreme, and obviously it can get much worse. You know, we're not Syria. So, so as bad as we might say things are in terms of, you know, fighting between the parties and, you know, uncertainty, you know, we still are way better off than most countries. But let's for now, say it's kind of an extreme for the U.S. in terms of uncertainty. And then counter that with a system a story where we knew exactly, you know, what health care would look like for the next decade, what the tax code would look like for the next decade. I think that would make some difference. But if you say, okay, we have differing levels of uncertainty. So I think it's certainly fair to say we have more uncertainty today than we did, say, three years ago when President Obama was in the White House with Republican Congress. Obviously, there are differences there, but... You know, we more or less knew what things were going to look like the next year and the year after. Um, I think that doesn't make much difference. So when people say, oh, there's all this chaos, the only place where I think that matters, it's a little bit technical, but I think it, you can find this, is that when you look at when people pay their taxes, and I'm going to make assumptions about your income, that most of what you get is from your job, because yes. most of us are in that situation. We don't have any choice about that. But when you get to really high-end people, people have, you know, two, three, four million, or in some cases hundreds of millions in, in the stock market and other assets, they have a choice about when they're going to declare their income. Um, mostly it's legal. I mean, something like I said, everything they do is legal, but, you know, if you have $20 million in stock you're thinking of selling, 
Well, if you think the tax rate's going to be lower in 2018 than in 2017, you're going to wait. And what we find, we're seeing this in the tax collections, is tax collections have fallen off in 2017. And, again, I can't say for sure this is the reason. The simplest explanation is a lot of people are expecting that tax rates will be lower in 2018. So we see a fall off in tax collections, you know, presumably somewhat less sales of assets. Doesn't have much impact on the economy. If you know one rich person is going to sell their twenty million in Microsoft to another rich person, doesn't have much impact on the economy. It's just the the, the point is we don't see the tax collections. So when we talk about uncertainty, I think that's the biggest part. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's troubling you know in terms of healthcare, all the people that have uh, health issues and don't know where their insurance is going to be next year. That's obviously a very serious issue. I'm not sure if there's much economic impact of that though. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dean Baker of the Center for Economic and Policy Research located in Washington, D.C. Dean, since you mentioned it several times in previous responses, let's talk about the Affordable Care Act for just a moment. It is, as you well know, it's been an re- obsession for years for replace and repeal or just repeal. Um, the bill that passed the House along with the um, Senate version that's being proposed, if you take those together, for what you've seen, um, how would that proposed legislation impact the economy? Well, there's a few things. I mean, obviously it takes money out of health care um, very directly. I mean, it, this is money that uh, is going for, for Medicaid in, in the states. That's being cut back over the course of, well, in fact, I was going to say the next decade, but it actually continues. So we'll have much less money going for health care. Um, we'd have less money for the subsidies and the exchanges, and instead that money goes to tax cuts, which overwhelmingly would benefit the very richest people in the country. So it's a bit of a redistribution that way. Um, so expect fewer jobs in health care. Um, the high-end people with their, their tax cuts probably will spend more. They'll mostly save it, but they will be spending some more. So um, more luxury car sales or whatever. But, you know, that, so that will have some impact on the economy. Well, I think we'll see the clearest impact on the economy, and we, we've done some research on this. One of the benefits of the Affordable Care Act is it allowed people to get health care insurance apart from employment. Of course, most people are pre-Medicare age. They get, get their insurance through their job. It's about 70% of them. The Affordable Care Act meant more people got it either through Medicaid or were able to get it through the exchanges. The result of that was you had a lot more people choosing to work part-time. And let me be very clear. I'm saying choosing. And right. uh, that's the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, when they do their employment survey every month, their unemployment survey, they ask people, did you work less than 35 hours? And a lot of people say yes. And then they go, why, why did you work less than 35 hours? And if they say, well, I can only find part-time employment. Well, that's involuntary. We understand that's a big problem. But more people are saying, well, I want it to work part-time and then you know reasons for it they want to take care of a kid they want they have a maybe a family member or a parent or you know family member that's in poor health so we see a big increase in voluntary part-time more than two million people have decided to work voluntarily part-time since the passage of the affordable care act so that was a really big deal i expect that to go in reverse uh, which i think is really unfortunate because that's one of the things that means an awful lot to people. You have a young kid, you'd like to spend some time with them. You know, you're still working, but you want to be able to spend your afternoons with them or take two days a week, you know, whatever it might be. Or again, you know, a sick family member, you want to be able to care for them. That that was a really big thing with the Affordable Care Act that I think aiding getting as, as much attention as it deserves and will be a real loss if it ends up being repealed. Yeah. 
One of the criticisms that we often heard about the Affordable Care Act, and I believe you can speak to this, was that, um, uh, especially emanating from the Republican Party, was that a number of communities had only one insurer uh, in which to choose from, and and, and some had no insurers as, uh, to, to choose from in exchange. Is that an honest assessment? Yeah, we do, just did an analysis of this because, you know, we obviously President Trump has mentioned that repeatedly. Many of the Republicans in Congress have gone around touting that fact. And there are a number of counties. It's more than 1,300, mostly uh, smaller counties. So it's not, you won't find this with big cities, but mostly smaller counties. But in any case, the 1,300 counties uh, where there's one insurer and some have literally have zero. So we looked at that, and it's really quite striking. The overwhelming majority of these are in states with Republican governors. Um, the one kind of exception here is North Carolina, which, of course, now is a Democratic governor, but that's only been for the last five months, and they still have a Republican legislature. With, with a supermajority super proof, uh, uh, supermajority, so they got veto power as well. Exactly. So we pulled that out of the Democratic column, and someone, if they want to argue with us, I mean, we could talk about that, but we pulled that out of the Democratic column. So what we go is, okay, so what's your probability, looking at populations, what's your probability of being in a county with only one insurer or less? You know, again, there's some with literally zero. And it's, it's almost 21% if you have a Republican governor. If you have a Democratic governor excluding North Carolina, it's 2%. You'd like it to be zero, but it's 2%. The, our takeaway from that is where you've had governors that have tried to make the system work, where they expanded Medicaid, pulling in a lot of lower-income people, also a lot of less healthy people, where they've tried to promote the exchanges, tried to encourage people to get insurance, tried to work with the insurance companies. They've generally been pretty successful. So where you actually have people have tried to make the Affordable Care Act work, they've pretty much been successful in doing so. Where you've had Republican governors who make no bones about it. They don't like it. They haven't expanded Medicaid. They aren't trying to encourage people to, to, to sign up for health care. Well, there it doesn't work very well. So, you know, I think that's kind of the story here. If you want to sabotage the Affordable Care Act, it's possible to do it. If you're trying to make it work, well, the people who've tried to make it work have been pretty successful. Well, well Dean, on the last answer, you make it sound like uh, you're having a dinner party. You invite me over uh, and say, Byron, bring a couple bottles of wine. Then I don't bring the wine. Then the next day I criticize you for not having wine at your dinner party. That's pretty much the story here. And, you know, again, we were just looking at the map and scratching our heads, and then we just did the, did the arithmetic, and, you know, I don't think anyone can find a very different result. Uh, one, one, one final thing before we let you go. You know, we're, we're, we're now we're seeing um, uh, a lot of President Trump's actions are so-called, you know, breaking news from his tweets, from his tweets, to, and then the real serious charge of possibly obstructing justice, whether intentionally or unintentionally, my words, not yours. I see this, in some cases, to become obfuscation of other matters. And I'm thinking specifically right now where you're concerned about the president's proposal to limit the alternative minimum tax and cut taxes on income received through pass-through corporations. I was wondering, that seems to be flying through the radar. I was wondering how you saw that. Well, these are incredibly cynical measures, and... You know, these are almost exclusively tax cuts that benefit the very wealthy. Um, the alternative minimum tax, I should also point out, benefit Donald Trump personally, because we know from the tax return that was released from 2005, he paid about another, I think it's $15 million in taxes because he was subject to the alternative minimum tax. So if you snap your fingers, it's gone. He has another $15 million in his pocket. 
But the other part, the, the pass-through corporation, this is, gets a little technical. Most people have no idea. They have no reason they should know. But basically what this is saying is that, you know, you have these corporations that they don't pay taxes as corporations. They just pass it back to the owners. So these are typically small businesses, and for most small businesses, it wouldn't be a big issue. They wouldn't have a big tax liability anyhow. But for people like Donald Trump, most of his income comes through these pass-through corporations. And instead of paying what he'd pay as an individual, currently 39.6%, if he's subject to the top tax rate, he'd be able to pay 15%. And it gets even worse because if you change the law so that you say, okay, if you have a pass-through corporation, you only have to pay 15% tax, well, these people aren't idiots. They're going to hire accountants, and they're going to figure out ways to have all their income, or at least the vast majority of it, come through pass-through corporations. So they're going to be paying 15% tax, uh, 15% tax rate, whereas, you know, school teachers, you know, I'm in a situation, I pay 25% tax rate, you know. So you have the very richest people in the country paying a considerably lower tax rate than school teachers, firefighters, very middle-income people. And radio hosts, I, I, throw, the, I throw that group in there as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, so... Uh, you know, to my view, it's just an amazing scam. It's exactly what you do not want in a tax code. People often talk about simplicity. This is the opposite. You know, this is basically creating a giant loophole that, you know, you and I, there's no way we could find to take advantage. Well, I shouldn't say that. I don't know your situation. No, 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 no you know my situation. Go ahead. Go right ahead. You're doing a great assumption. You're, you're, you're pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, so we're not going to be able to take advantage of it. But for people earning, you know, a million, five million, ten million, they're going to be hiring accountants, and they'll take full advantage of it. They'll be, you know basically gaming the tax code so both you know we get much less in tax from them and we have this huge waste where we have this whole industry figuring out how to make it so that people earn five million dollars could pay a lower tax rate than school teachers well dean here, here here's the um anal- here's the uh, analysis for that see since i host a radio show where i give you time to talk and explain complicated issues that moves me out of the realm of having a high-paid radio show. That's, that's just how it works, eh? <laughs> I think that's right. Maybe if you were on Fox and Friends, that would be a different story. Yeah, then we have, we're having a different conversation. You probably wouldn't even come on my show then. So <laughs> probably not. <laughs> uh, Dean Baker uh, uh, from the Center of Economic and Policy Research, thank you, sir, for once again joining us on the public rally. We much appreciated your voice, sir. Sure, happy to be on. Thanks for having me. The public rally welcomes your comments. You can contact me directly at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are found on our website, which is PublicMorality.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast at iTunes. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.